Imagine living in constant uncertainty of your own health. Living in an area said to be contaminated with no way to move out without fear of losing everything you've owned. It's so uncertain that even officials in your area don't know how to respond, and blame seems to be shifted on the way you live. Hello, my name is Francis Rodriguez Caraballo, and today I would like to discuss an ethnography named Flammable Environmental Suffering in an Argentine Shantytown, written by Javier Ayero and Deborah Alejandra Suistron. As the name of it states, it focuses on a shantytown located in Argentina and how major oil companies that have placed themselves in the town have had a powerful effect on the residents in the area. I did choose this for my world ethnographic project, but I was also curious about anthropology's role in studying how the environment affects one's way of living, including politics, economics, and unequal distribution of power. This was my first full ethnography I've ever read. Since everything else I've read were the shorter stories from my class's cultural anthropology reader. So I believe this was a good experience for me, and I would like to discuss what I have learned from this book to you all. First, I want to talk about the people who made this book. There are two authors credited with writing and gathering information. One of the authors, Deborah Alejandra Swistron, is an anthropologist from the National University of La Plata, Argentina. Her research focuses on the public politics, environmental health, urban spaces, and sustainability. She has had a major role in this book since she actually grew up in the neighborhood we are about to study. This provides the book with a good first-hand experiences from someone familiar with the area. It allows her to speak and interview with the residents in a more comfortable way since they grew up and are familiar with her. Next is Javier Aliero, a professor of Latin American Sociology at the University of Texas at Austin and Interim Director at LLIAS. His focus in research is political anthropography, urban marginality, and collective violence. He has many books on Argentina, not just a focus on the shantytown flammable. Javier's role in making of this book was more so speaking to the officials of the area, and less to the residents, since Deborah was doing that. He interviewed company workers, health workers, etc. I found this dynamic between the two authors very useful in providing information from different perspectives. This helped me understand the situation in Flammable a lot more. So the main broad question of this book is, how do people make sense of and cope with toxic danger? It is researching how the residents, including the officials, of Flammable make sense of the environment they live in, and why it turned out the way it did. How do they make sense of the dangerous health effects of living in the area? Do they blame the government, themselves, or their economy? Or is there no problem at all in their spirit perspective? This book states it will focus on the life-threatening effects on the environmental contamination of the Flammable shantytown, ignorance to the pollution, not just physical pollution, but social and politically produced pollution. Not just from the residents, but officials as well. Chapter 1. Vias de Richuelo Chapter 1 summarizes the state and fate of shanty towns in Buenos Aires in a regional and global text. It's discussed 
the high crime rate in the area and how more and more people are starting to live in these conditions and how you're really either really poor or rich. There is a very little research on the health effects on living in the slums and how the location is in a flawed area. It also discusses the lack of basic services to the area to keep it from becoming harmful to the residents. And at the end, it discussed how the oil company Shell contributes to the environmental suffering in the area by letting garbage rest on the streets of Buenos Aires, festering disease-ridden rodents, and discharging industrial waste into the streams. Chapter 2. The Compound in the Neighborhood This chapter provides us with visual knowledge of the area, giving many photographs of flammable taken from the children at school. These images hold significance as well, because the pictures were taken from students depending on what they liked about flammable and what they didn't like about flammable. The pictures they liked had mostly family members, friends, and the school or the health center. The things that they didn't like showcased the garbage and pollutions in the streets. This chapter also gives us insight into the history of flammable and the major oil companies such as Shell in the area. Passages from the residents lets us figure out that some people don't like Shell because of the amount of smoke they emit, thinking it leads to their lead poisoning. But some people believe that the Shell company in the area is actually helpful to the community by providing jobs to the residents and helping fund the health centers and the school. Chapter 3, Toxic Worlds. This chapter interviews people who work at Shell and their contradicting views compared to the residents. It has an unfortunate story of a woman named Karina Olmos, how she struggles to find work and provide for her family. She's trying for a lawsuit against the companies, hoping to move out with the money a lawsuit would provide her. TV reporters use her lead-poisoned daughter for news stories with promises of helping her, but never show up again after using her. The chapter ends with explaining the uncertainty and contamination's effects. Chapter 4 the Confused and Mistaken, Categories of the Dominated. It starts off talking about TV reporters taking advantage of this area for media coverage, without actually helping. It again reiterates that each resident sees contamination differently. Some people use their good health to deny or question the pollution, but some believe they are affected or their loved ones are affected. Toxic uncertainty is an important factor of this chapter, since no one can afford to know what is happening with, to their health. Government once talked about urgently addressing the pollution, but nothing has come up of it. It is confusing when it seems the residents are always about to be removed by the government, but never actually are removed. And finally, the victim blaming, saying it's the poor people's fault for not living healthy. This is an excuse used by the companies to try and get away with the pollution they are causing. Saying that poorer populations are only getting sick by their own actions, such as not being able to afford good health care or take care of themselves fully, etc. And none of their health problems are the company's fault. Chapter 5, Exposed Waiting This chapter talks about the only protest that took place in the area called The Struggle Against the Wire. The people tried to address the issue of pollution, but failed. This led to the notion of having absolutely no power over rich companies though this did not stop certain residents from fighting for a good relocation paid for by Shell. Chapter 6. 
collective disbelief, and joint action. This chapter shows how there is a problem with residents putting hope on what officials can do on their behalf, not what they can do as a joint community. Though there are problems with becoming a joint community due to the links between toxic uncertainty and collective action, including the fact that the older residents are unsure of leaving in fear of losing the one thing they have, their home. The book itself does state that in order for the residents to be able to be re relocated, they must solve these problems collectively. Chapter 7. The Social Production of Toxic Uncertainty Finally, the last chapter discusses the contamination slowly growing and flammable, and how the contamination didn't just appear out of nowhere, it took a long period of continuous pileup of pollution for the residents to notice what was wrong with the area. It is hard for the residents to know what is going on when the higher powers control what they want to see, including companies paying to shut people up about the area. Then it goes to the importance of the sheer amount of confusion, confusion of the area. That is a very important factor of this whole book. I want to actually read a passage from this book to provide a better insight into the lives of the residents of this area. I will be reading about a resident the book starts up with during the introduction. Her name is Sandra Martinez. In this passage, we'll discuss her problems with living in the shanty town as a mother. Sandra's suffering. In 1987, Sandra Martinez moved to Flammable Shanty Town, Villa Inflammable, located in Dock Sud, Buenos Aires. They have, all, they have all been living in the neighborhood for the last 18 years. Sandra is now 25, is married to Carlos Martinez, and has four children. Both Carlos and Sandra used to work as cleaners in two of the companies of the compound, but they lost their jobs years ago. These days, Carlos leaves the house every afternoon to scavenge around up and down Avenida Mitre. On a good week, I make around $25, US $8. Sometimes I bring stuff to sell, a pair of sneakers or something I find in the street, and I make 5 or 10 pesos. It all depends on the kind of merchandise I bring. But now the streets are empty. It's tough. But some people give me cardboards or newspapers. Some other people give me clothes or sneakers. And I sell that stuff. And we subsist. With her plan, we have nothing else. Sandra has not been able to find a job and is currently a beneficiary of the plan Jeffus e Jeffus, an, an unemployment subsidy of $150 per month, US $50, that the federal government launched after the 2001 economic collapse in Argentina. Together, she says, we make around $250, or US $82 per month, and with that, we make ends meet. We cook once a day at night. For lunch, their children have bread and milk. Their only fall meal is dinner. Carlos tried to sign up for the plan Jeffus e Jeffus, but nothing happened. I did all the paperwork and nothing came through. The Martinez's pressing economic needs compete for their attention with the constant health problems of their two children. Two of them, Sandra remarks, have problems. The other two came out well. The youngest one, Julian, is now five and has had convulsions since he was a baby. He was born with a mark in his head. The doctors told me it was nothing, that it was just a birthmark. He then started to have convulsions, and I began to go from one hospital to another. At the children's hospital, he had a tomography done, 
and it turns out that his brain is affected by that mark, which is not just on the outside, but the inside too. And now he has that angioma that is popping out. See Julian, show it to them. When Julian shows us the protruding round pimple, we ask Sandra about the doctor's diagnosis. They don't explain anything to me, she says. They don't know why he has that mark. I had my testing done, his father was also tested, and we have nothing. They didn't screen us for lead because they have to charge us for that, and we couldn't pay. Julian was prescribed an anticonvulsant. Sanda receives a bottle of Epimel a month for free at the local public hospital. But Julian uses two or three bottles, and it's $18 to $20 for each one. And sometimes we just can't afford it. I began the paperwork to see if I can get it for free. Everybody promised me, but nothing happened. Papers, 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 but nothing works. Julian needs to be routinely supervised for his convulsions, but it has been a while since his last checkup. We now have an appointment for August. He could die before then, but I have to wait. Sometimes he has convulsions twice a day, and I have no medication. I don't even have the money to pay for the bus to go to the hospital. Children here are always sick, with bronchitis, with a cold. She, she referring to Sophia, her seven-year-old daughter, always has headaches and stomach aches. Sophia was born with her left leg significantly shorter than her right one. When Sandra had her first ultrasound, she was told that Sophia was going to come out with problems. When I told the doctors that I was living here, they told me I should have my lead level tested. I couldn't afford the exams. The doctors told me that the lead may have caused a problem of the leg. Lately, Sophia began to show signs of serious learning difficulties at school. She has problems remembering the numbers. It's really hard for her. Sandra herself is in not a better shape. She looks much older than 25. Half of her teeth are missing, and she always looks extremely tired. I have all the symptoms, she says, refer referring to possible lead poisoning. My personal experience while reading this book was one of surprise. I expected a clear answer explaining why things are the way they are in Shantytown, but I now know there is a lot of confusion, not only with the people living in the area, but also officials. I would say that one criticism is that I felt like this book repeated the information a lot and it sometimes made me confused since there is no clear timeline of events. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast about the environmental suffering of a shanty town in Argentina.